This is the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. My name is Sarah Jefford and I'm a surrogate and a surrogacy lawyer. In this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Lynn Burmeister, who runs Number One Fertility Clinic here in Melbourne. Dr. Lynn was able to answer some questions that we've had about IVF and treatments and infertility generally, and I think it's a great resource for anyone considering uh, their own fertility and how they might best look after themselves when they're trying to create embryos. I'm going to hand over now to Dr. Lynn, and if you're looking to find her, you can find her on Instagram and on Facebook, but I'll leave the details in the post on my website. Here's Dr. Lynn. Hello, my name is Dr. Lynn Burmeister, and I'm Medical Director of Number One Fertility, which is a boutique fertility practice, which is completely doctor-owned. I set this business up approximately two years ago when I left Monash IVF. I was with Monash IVF. Um, as one of their lead doctors for 20 years, and I decided to break out and do my own boutique clinic. Um, the, the, the clinic is basically patient-focused um, and also journey-focused, and so I want to give everyone a really lovely experience uh, through their fertility journey uh, and to try and make the clinic a stress-free clinic and the process as stress-free as possible. Um, and I realised that there was a, a lack of that in the IVF market. Thank you. Can you tell me, how did you come to be an IVF specialist? Uh, So I started medicine and I loved medicine, but I liked life. I realised halfway through my medical degree that I liked life. So I did six months of obstetrics and gynae in the medical degree and we got to deliver babies and I thought, how cool is this? So, and also no one was really getting sick. So there wasn't that, it wasn't the end of life. It was the start of life. And so when I finished medicine, I decided I wanted to be an obstetrician gynaecologist. And then when I was training, Professor Carl Wood took a liking to me and he's the founder of IVF in Australia. And he said, you should be an IVF doctor. And that was sort of the end of the end. And I ended up studying IVF training under his wing. Um, And in fact, when I was like 40 weeks pregnant, I went into labor and I was doing an IVF list. And I said to Carl Wood, I'm in labour, Carl. And he's like, don't worry, just finish the list. And if you have the baby, I'll deliver it for you. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so Carl was a great man. And he was like, uh, he was his vision was amazing, a very intelligent man. And um, we had a good relationship. And then I spent a couple of years in New York finishing my training at one of the big IVF hospitals in New York City. And then came back and started with Monash IVF. Um, uh, in 2001 yeah that's amazing that's really interesting yeah so there's a whole lot of questions that I see around the surrogacy community about uh, fertility and IVF so I've got a a list of questions that we might go through to see if we can educate the community about what IVF is involved in surrogacy so perhaps starting with what are the lifestyle factors that can impact male or female fertility well there's so many lifestyle factors so and and I often find the males really don't understand so they don't understand that 50 percent of that embryo is going to be them and they're often smoking even by the time they come to see me and then i say you have to stop smoking i find it quite i find it sort of like eye-opening that they have no concept that their sperm is making 50 percent of the embryo so i do take a lifestyle history of both the the mum and the dad or the pen you know the future mum and dad and and make sure they're not smoking um, I ask them about coffee intake, alcohol. So for guys, no more than 10 standard drinks a week. For women, no more than five standard drinks a week. Coffee, probably one a day um, for women, maybe two to three for men because it doesn't have such an impact 
on on the sperm as it does for eggs. Um, so I do take a detailed lifestyle history, and if I think they're very unhealthy, I send them to a naturopath to for guidance on how to get themselves appropriately fit for pregnancy. So I am very holistic in my approach to treating males and females and um, never ignore the male. I like all the males to come to the appointment um, and I do give them a big, big lecture if they are smoking or drinking excessive alcohol. Or sometimes I've got guys that tell me they smoke marijuana and their friends smoke marijuana and they've got, you know, five babies. It's not a problem. But, you know, I give them lectures on all the things that they might be doing that's unhealthy. Mm. And the best diet to follow when you're trying to have a baby, and it's actually being proven, is to follow the Mediterranean diet which is white meat, so fish and chicken, but it has to be organic, and lots of red and green vegetables. So if we mix up the red and green vegetables, we're doing really well with all our antioxidants. And the best way to get your vitamins is through your food, not through a vitamin tablet, but I do give my patients supplements as well on top of, um, what, uh, on top of recommending a healthy diet. So for a surrogate who's not providing the egg, is the same lifestyle factors going to have an impact on her getting pregnant as well? Yeah, definitely. So if she's smoking, I wouldn't let a surrogate go through if she was smoking. Mm -hmm. There would be definitely no coffee. There's some evidence linked to miscarriages. So I try and get them to cut down their coffee. And same with their diet, you know, healthy weight, um, you know, making sure they're exercising, and reducing their stress as well, yet the surrogate needs to be healthy as well. So another question that I hear quite often is, how old is too old to be a surrogate? Can she be a surrogate if she's gone through menopause? And are there any other factors about her age that you would need to consider? Well, a lot of clinics will have cutoff for age. Uh, our age cutoff is 52 here, which is the average age of menopause. Um, and so we've made 52, but you could actually get a, a lady pregnant when she was 70, 80, 90, like you could, whether it would be very healthy, because um, the uterus can be um, changed and altered with hormones. So the hormones can actually thicken up a lining, even if someone's gone into menopause. Uh, we, we have a cutoff because after 52, there might be increased health risk for that lady, like hypertension, strokes, heart attacks, um, before someone becomes a surrogate, if they are, of the over 40 plus and they need to be properly assessed and have their heart checked and, and things like that to make sure that they, when they get pregnant, they're not going to have a stroke or have a heart attack or something really bad's going to happen to them. So we always want our surrogates to end up being healthy at the end and having no medical issues during the pregnancy. My oldest surrogate was 52 and she carried her baby for her daughter who um, was born without a uterus and um, she miscarried for her first pregnancy, but that was because the embryo was abnormal. But the second embryo we put in, she actually ended up having the baby. So it was a lovely story. Mm. Um, but the mum was getting close to 53, so we felt very pressured time-wise to get her pregnant before she was 53. Mm. Mm. So when it comes to creating embryos, um, what's the difference between a day two and a day five embryo, and why do we freeze them at different stages? Well, in my view, all embryos should be frozen at day five. So when you have, when you have a fertilised egg, um, it becomes a day, you know, day two embryo. And the issue with a day two embryo, they've only got three or four cells. So you can't, you can't even tell at that stage whether it's going to be alive. So it needs to really compact, which occurs on day 
for, and we still call it the stage of compaction. And that's when it actually tells us, okay, this is gonna be okay. It's all compacting together and all the cells are igniting and it just looks like a ball. And then the next state turns into a blastocyst. And if it hasn't gone from compaction to the blastocyst stage, it's probably not gonna be a baby. And the problem with freezing at day two, you never know those three or four cells are ever gonna compact and ever become a baby. And so what might happen to that surrogate is that she might have loads and loads and loads of day two transfers until she finds the baby one. Whereas if we can sort that out for her in the lab and the commissioning parents in the lab, um, you know, that's sorted out. Okay, this embryo's got, got the potential of being a baby. And so if you've got, for instance, um, eight day two embryos, you're probably only gonna have two or three blastocysts from that. So at least that poor person, I would say it's, you know, it, 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 it's a poor person having to go through eight transfers to potentially have three embryos that might be a baby. We can sort that out before that so the, the surrogate doesn't have to go through unnecessary transfers. Mm. And when it comes to testing embryos, um, I don't know whether it's too technical to us, what's the difference between PGD and PGS screening? So PG, PGS is now termed PGT, which um, is annual polity screening in the embryo. PGD is where we're looking for uh, uh, genetic problems. So if someone's got cystic fibrosis, we would check as pre-implantation genetic diagnosis to look for cystic fibrosis in the embryo. Um, and PGT is looking for aneuploidy with the embryo, which means abnormal chromosomes like Down syndrome or another form of, there's a condition called Turner syndrome where um, the female's missing an X chromosome and they're often infertile themselves and have health issues. So PGT, which used to be called PGS, it is actually um, uh, what we do for people where we're worried that they might have a whole lot of embryos with aneuploidy because that's the other thing. If you've got a surrogate, you don't want her to have a transfer and then miscarry or find out at 10 weeks that she's got a Down syndrome embryo inside her because she might have ethical reasons that she wouldn't terminate a Down syndrome baby. So with most of my surrogates and the commissioning parents, I will recommend that they do embryo screening um, for aneuploidy. So we're not in the situation where the poor surrogate's having miscarriages um, or finding out 10 weeks got an abnormality. Uh, and um, there is some really good studies coming out that even in 32-year-olds, if you have a 32-year-old that tested her embryo and the other group didn't test her embryo, um, the group that tested their embryos were quicker to have a baby and less likely to miscarry. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Okay. So, so even uh, couples that are coming to you without needing surrogacy yeah. might want to consider that sort Yeah, of and I explain it all to them and it's up to the... It is more expensive, so it's a personal choice, but def, I would highly recommend it to everyone over 35. Okay. Mm. So what's AMH and what does it mean and why might we do an AMH test? An AMH is not wouldn't be needed on a surrogate um, because we're not getting the surrogate's eggs, but you would do it on a patient that's seeing you for infertility um, or where you're creating embryos. From a fertility specialist point of view, it actually helps us work out what dose that person's going to need to create a good number of eggs. So ideally we want 10 to 15 eggs to give us enough eggs to create good embryos. If we get low number of eggs, as I said, four, four embryos might make one blastocyst. So we really want to get the, a good number of eggs in the freezer for the surrogate 
to um, bit of wind in the background <laughs> for the to to you know for future surrogacy um, or just for patients needing to have babies. So. Um, yeah, so 10 to 15 days, and I use the AMH, so I see the, the infertility patient a little bit like a mathematical equation, and I was actually very good at maths. So I get the AMH, and I get a scan, and then I look at her, and I get a feeling from looking at her and her weight and everything, what dose I'm going to put her on, and it's very rare that I, I will get that equation wrong, or the answer to that equation wrong. So does AMH tell us the, the quality of the no. eggs that a woman's got? So you could be 33 with a low AMH, but your air quality could still be okay. Okay, so somebody mm. that's perhaps older but got a high AMH might not have good quality eggs. Yes, yeah, so a 40-year-old who's got a high AMH, her egg quality is still going to be 40, but she's more likely to get pregnant than a 40-year-old with a low AMH. Okay. Because if a 40-year-old has a low AMH, I might be lucky to get two or three eggs. And the chance that I'm going to find a baby from two or three eggs is very low. But if I have a 40-year-old that gets 15 eggs, I'm probably going to find a baby egg for her. Great. Mm. Okay. Um, when it comes to surrogacy, one of the questions we have a lot is whether a surrogate can do a natural cycle, so without any sort of IVF medications, if she's got a regular cycle. Can you talk us through... Why is a surrogate perhaps medicated um, and is it possible for her to do an, an unmedicated or a natural cycle? Well, most surrogates are fertile, so um, we, we have to quarantine the embryos so they're frozen. So it's not like we have to time the surrogate with when we're collecting the eggs. So there's actually no reason why a surrogate would actually have to be medicated. So um, unless she's got irregular periods. But most surrogates don't because they're fertile. Um, so if the surrogate had irregular periods, you might have to medicate them, but there's different ways of medicating them without a lot of sorry, a lot of patients um, will be given lots of estrogen and progesterone and that makes them feel really unwell. And there's different protocols you can use without actually having to do that to someone. And so, um, but most of the time when I have a surrogate, I don't give them any medicine. If I'm a little bit worried about their luteal phase, which is the second phase after the embryo goes in, I might just give them one pessary to put it, progesterone pessary to put in at night time before they go to bed, but that would be it. So nothing else. Right. I, I, with my surrogates, I always do a trial transfer because some patients have had cesarean sections or something, and I want to make sure when I've bored the embryo that I can actually get it in. So I do do a, a trial transfer on everyone. Um, but apart from that, uh, I, I don't intervene too much with their cycles. So if a surrogate's going off to perhaps with her intended parents to talk to the specialist, what are the questions she might ask of the specialist if um, they're wanting to know whether they can do a natural cycle? Well, if the specialist did suggest a hormone replacement therapy cycle, then I would actually question the specialist as to why they have to do that, particularly if she's already ovulating. Um, so and what's his reasoning or her reasoning behind it because I would say they don't need to do a, a medicated cycle. Okay, that's really helpful. Mm. So what does an embryo transfer involve? Uh, it's pretty simple. So if you come to Emerald City, it's quite beautiful. You get to lie in one of our chaise lounges um, and you even get a foot ceremony where you get a foot massage. Then we bring you into the transfer room and um, the transfer nurse will hold the ultrasound on the bladder or the lower abdomen and I'll put a speculum into the vagina just like a pap smear 
and with a tiny catheter we put the embryo in. So first of all we start the outside catheter to make sure we're in the right place and then we'll ask the scientist to load up the embryo once we're happy we're in the right place and then the scientist loads up the embryo and then with a tiny thin catheter that goes to the outer catheter we put the embryo into the middle of the uterus. Okay. Um, how do clinics calculate success rates? This might be a, a bigger question than you can answer in one go, but I mean, lots of people are interested in how do they know that their clinic is a good clinic and is it based on something like success rates? Yes, it, it is. I think, like, well, most clinics, you know, are offering good success rates. So with the technology around, there's probably not a lot of variation to success rates. Um, you can go to the reports, like BARDA does their yearly reports and try and work it out, but it is very confusing to work out pregnancy rates from their reports. Um, but, you know, it, it, with the modern day technology and how we do IVF, then most clinics would uh, do have good pregnancy rates. So as long as the patient feels that I think it's about the doctor and that the doctor would be doing the right thing by them. I can't see that the um, clinics should or would have bad success rates. Yeah, It's not in the clinic's interest to have bad success rates because you want your patient to get pregnant mm. and tell her friends and then the friends come to you because their friend got pregnant really quickly. Mm. Um, so tell us about fertility preservation. What are the reasons why somebody might consider freezing their eggs um, ahead of time and what's involved in that process? So it's becoming more popular, um, fertility preservation. And so I'm seeing a lot of girls even in their 20s coming in, checking their egg bank count, which is the anti-malarian hormone count. Um, sometimes I turn them away if it's really good. I just say, you know, come back when you're 30 because you might meet someone. Um, when they're 30 to 35 and they still want to freeze their eggs, then probably it's a good time to do it um, because the eggs start to deteriorate in quality dramatically after our 35th birthday. Um, and I have a lot of 40-year-old ladies regretting that they didn't, didn't have the opportunity to freeze eggs when they were 30. The technology 10 years ago wasn't that great. Now we have vitrification, so it's snap freezing the eggs. So a fresh and a frozen egg have very similar pregnancy rates. So um, I would say to girls between 30 to 35 that it's a good option for them, um, particularly if they're not in a relationship and they want to have babies in the future. Um, the problem is... Again, though, it is expensive and not many 30 to 35-year-olds can just come out with the cash to, to freeze their eggs. And that's why I've started a low-cost egg freeze centre um, to try and help them. So, Because most girls will have to do it twice to make it worthwhile. And um, ideally, we want about 20 eggs stored away. So they've got a chance of a, a pregnancy from those 20 eggs in the future. Yeah. Most of my patients that have frozen eggs, I'm finding that they're using those eggs for their second baby at the moment. So they might have frozen their eggs about 35 and they've had the baby naturally at 37 and then at 40 they struggle so they come and use their frozen eggs. Okay, so it's quite a, quite a good um, mm. insurance policy. Yeah, for the, even the second baby. Yeah. yeah. So for mm. women who have been given a cancer diagnosis, what's the process for them in terms of, I guess, receiving the diagnosis and before they might have to undergo a hysterectomy? Yeah. Is there usually enough time to do an IVF and egg pickup? Yeah, so the cancer doctors are actually more aware now. So they usually just ring me, I get them in the next day. And we the good thing that we've found with IVF, you can actually start someone any time in their cycle. So even if the cancer 
um, patient was day 14 of her cycle, we can just start. Whereas we used to wait, I think we had to wait till day two of her period. We don't have to do that. So we can just start as soon as we see them. So usually they come in, I get them to see the nurse straight away and we start them on the day. And depending what sort of cancer they have, like breast cancer, for instance, we might have to give them other hormones to lower their estrogen so we're not growing the breast cancer. Um, and then once we collect the eggs, if it's a best breast cancer patient, we give them a suppression medicine, so we suppress the ovaries. Um, we also do that for non-breast cancer patients as well, and we put an implant in called Zolidex, and it suppresses the ovaries and, and keeps them hibernated whilst they're having chemotherapy. And the hibernation of the ovary has been shown to decrease their risk of menopause as well. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing what technology can yeah, do. Yeah, I know, and that what we're finding out as well, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. if people are thinking about finding a donor, what would your um, advice be about the sort of woman that would make a good egg donor? Well, most well in Australia, we can't pay for egg donors, so um, it's very hard for, to find egg donors, and a lot of my patients actually go overseas. Um, but often they'll ask a friend or they might ask a family member. Um, sometimes they will go onto the forums and find um, egg donors um, after they've put in an ad to the health minister. So I've had a few patients do that. But it is very hard for Victorians, particularly with our legislation, to find egg donors. And at the moment I'm trying to import eggs um, for our Victorian ladies, but because I know there's a shortage, I would say I send four to five people overseas a week. Oh wow! In terms of somebody that wants to be an egg donor, what are the sort of I guess physical um, things that she needs to be aware of, or the people that are considering? Yeah, her so as the donor? egg donor—it's a very big thing to do, just like surrogacy is, and um, so she'll have to do counselling. She'll have to do blood, she'll have to do a baseline ultrasound, she'll have to take her vitamins, she'll have to take make lifestyle changes as well. Um, so it's very time consuming and she'll have to take injections. And then at the end of the course of injections, she'll have to have an egg collection. And an egg collection might go smoothly or there could be complications. So she could get ovarian hyperstimulation, she could bleed and need surgery to stop the bleeding or um, she could actually get an infection. So it's not just, I'll give you my eggs, there's a big process involved in it. Mm. Great. Did you have anything that you would suggest to people that are considering IVF? Well, if you're considering IVF, I would actually say, get you, yourselves as healthy as possible, um, change lifestyle, make sure that you're eating well, you're limiting your stress, um, you're loving your partner, you know, um, and, and because I see a lot of relationships break down through this process, and I think that's the most important thing is to keep that that happiness between them, even though it's so dreadful. Um, but before you can you come and see someone like me, just make sure you're doing everything you can possibly, and then if it's not working yourselves, then I can come and fix fix it usually. But I can't fix it if it's broken. I can't fix it if you're smoking cigarettes or if you're drinking a bottle of wine a day. I can't fix those things. So I want you to get as healthy as you can before you come and see someone like me because then if I have a healthy egg and a healthy sperm, then I'm going to make a healthy embryo and that's going to improve my pregnancy rates. Thank you for listening to the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. If you would like to find out more information about surrogacy, you can have a look at my website at sarahjefford.com. You can also find me on Facebook and on Instagram, and you can listen to more podcasts on the website or on Apple Podcasts.